Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Get the Table, another wrestling roundtable discussion podcast with myself, Adam Wilborn, and the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamlet and Michael Sidgwick, here to discuss another burning wrestling issue. And that wrestling issue today is Triple H's secret weapon. Michael Hamlet, what is Triple H's secret weapon? Well, we are positing today that it is indeed stables. Um, they've made a fairly welcome return to WWE. Um, in recent months, and a lot of that has obviously been overseen by Triple H. Um, you can look at the success of the Bloodline currently as an act that started before Triple H existed, but I've only uh, grown in critical acclaim since he's taken over. He has spotted ways in which to make something that was already quite good even better. It's expanded by two members since he's been in the chair, so it's like safe to give him some of the credit for that. But then I think an even greater example, and I think the best example of his entire run in WWE so far, is the success of the Judgment Day. The remarkable like rehabilitation mm. recovery of a laughed at and ludicrous loser gimmick on Monday Night Raw to become earnestly um, an act that it feels like people are paying to watch. You're either paying to boo Dominic Mysterio, <laughs> um, you're paying to see... Finn Balor inevitably disappoint you against Edge, but like at least wrestle and at least be in matches that feel like they've got stakes. And theoretically, at some point, the Judgment Day are going to fight for titles. And indeed, with Rhea Ripley in the fold, there's plenty they can fight for too. Um, it just feels like he's immediately acknowledging the value of something that, like perpetually we would hear that Vince McMahon would just despise, mm. which is why I think it's easy to uh, draw the line between Vince and Triple H's attitudes towards them as a as a typical wrestling trope that like everyone should at least be able to indulge in once in a while. Yeah, you've seen a variety of different like threads on Twitter or Reddit or whatever it may be, Sage. Like you say, listing Judgment Day, Bloodline, uh, Brawling Brutes, Imperium. I could go on and on and on here. Um, it is baffling. Me and Hamplet actually were talking about this on the news the other day. It is baffling that Vince was so dismissive of a trope that has clearly worked quite well in wrestling over the years. It's an absolutely brilliant facilitator of stories, matches, um, developments, um, everything in wrestling is fundamentally based on stables, at least modern, episodic, and indeed international wrestling television. I was thinking about this as you were talking. I was not listening, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Sometimes I do get lost in my own world, but I was trying to prepare a point as well. Is there a single major, super acclaimed wrestling promotion in our lifetimes as dorky millennial fans that didn't have a narrative foundation of stables? Um, Attitude Era... Um, the golden age of the WWF, certainly. Um, the early 90s of the um, All Japan Pro Wrestling had a really great generational twist on stables and associations. Uh, New Japan entered its resurgence, which it might all well be gone at this point. It's still good, but it's not the same. But it entered its resurgence period of the 2010s, a glorious decade with a stable-based framework. Um, JCP... Uh, AEW certainly has borrowed from mm. a lot of those promotions and they centered their narrative around stables and the fact that you can preserve the big matches, you can do turns two years down the line, you can do several different really electrifying brawl-heavy angles, you can do everything with stables. What was it's the one thing that drew money in the reign of terror? 
It's the breaking up of evolution. Yeah. Like even that, yeah. like even in Triple H at his worst, that's doing a great awesome number well, for WrestleMania yeah. with mm. the breaking up of evolution. And honestly, it's scandalous that Vince McMahon just decided, I know what, I'm not going to have a part of this anymore. Like, I'm not going to do them anymore. It was just fundamentally boring TV. It exacerbated his impulses to do 50-50 booking and just doing retreads of the same really worn-out singles programs. Um, and yet again, it's something that... Uh, the incredible curve of how drastically bad WWE was, or uninteresting at least, mm. with Vince McMahon in the chair in those final days. And it's just a yet another thing... You can't keep getting away with this. <laughs> now, Triple H, I'm joking, but he's had this incredible yeah, yeah. curve against which literally anything's better. I can say wrestling on TV. Road Warrior pop for that. What? <laughs> it's, it's absolutely incredible to me, but his, it's a, not a stupid mm -hmm. idea. In fact, it's the most basic one possible, but because it was so wretched, Triple H doing the basics, the easy things has gotten this sort of critical acclaim. Mm. I'm not saying that WWE doesn't completely deserve it, but it's a testament to how <laughs> terrible it got under Vince McMahon. The Austin pop is no longer the glass smash, and it's the theory getting his first name back. <laughs> I know, <laughs> it's I know. absolutely wild. It's crazy to me. I, I want to come back to you in a bit, because I do want to uh, get your thoughts on what they can learn from AEW, which obviously you utilised stables. It's been an open goal for so long in wrestling, like you say. They utilised it, and I, I want to see what WWE can take from that. But do you think that this is something that Triple H has planned for a while? You mentioned his involvement in Evolution there, and obviously when he was in NXT, he had the Undisputed Era, like... Yeah, I mean, Vince was there. We we made a joke about it, I remember, towards the end of the uh, last last year, two years ago, I'm not sure exactly. Zelina Vega's stable. Oh, God. That yeah. just kept, it must have been two years ago, kept adding members, yeah. and every time they did, they'd lose more, almost, because of Vince's just sheer disdain, as you say, uh, for stables. This has must have been in the works for a while, and it's not that difficult to go, you, you, and you, you've got a collective goal. Well, it, yeah, it's, it's to Cedric's point, really. It's not so much that just stables that were in the works, but all the obvious things that have always worked were in the works <laughs> as a as a starting point. Like, let's start with all the obvious things that have always worked and see if we can make them even better than, you know, they were before. Some aren't going to hit, some are going to miss. Um, the Vince McMahon examples are just so disastrous that it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, didn't it? The bigger the Nexus got, the worse it got. You know, you think of the Nexus, you think of John Cena beating them all up by himself. So that would have been, in Vince McMahon's mind, proof of concept that the idea was dead, when it, of course, obviously wasn't. And I'm, I'm not also, as much as I'm enjoying WWE, I'm also not a fan of putting Triple H on too much of a pedestal. Hmm. He's not a good guy. But I can well believe that he would have like been banging his head off a wall sometimes, knowing what he was producing in NXT and knowing what he was seeing when he was sat there at Gorilla with Ned. And knowing indeed what he came out of in Degeneration X and then later in Evolution. And being able to say, well, yes, that's proof of your concept, but how about proof of mine? How about proof of wrestling's? I got into wrestling because of the Triple H. I got into wrestling because of the Four Horsemen and so on and so on. You know, there's just there's countless examples. The one time WCW was kicking your ass dead. It was because of the NWO. Like, here's a million proofs of concept. Do that. It's honestly, it's not, it's not reinventing the wheel, but it's just putting the wheel back on the car. Mm. Right? And it's honestly, it's just, it's, I don't want to undersell because I'm really enjoying WWE's use of them. And certainly, like, you can have bad stables. Jesus Christ, I've seen you can. many of them. Loads of them too. Loads of them too. But it's certainly at the moment, while the majority of them feel like they're hitting, it feels particularly pronounced, I would say. Mm. What are some of your favorite, favorite stables from, from well, currently and from, from over the years, Sige? Um, currently, I'm kind of, ironically, because I think it's working very well in WWE, I'm kind of tiring of the concept, but we'll get to that mm. for the third and final talking point of today's podcast. 
um, historically, every single time, I didn't live through this, of course. I was born in 1985 when the stable formed. But whenever I watch footage of the Four Horsemen, it just feels like the coolest thing. Across each member, you had authority, menace, wit, but in def- different ways, charisma out the goddamn ass. Incredible to watch, like Tully Blanchard, like pounding his fist on the table with conviction at what he was going to do to someone. Like, it was just an absolutely incredible, incredible um, and revolutionary um, unit. And the Bullet Club were great because what happened is that I love interlopers. I love it when contexts collide. I think it's fantastic. And Hiroshi Tanahashi had done such a great job of simplifying and purifying what it meant to be New Japan Pro Wrestling, this absolutely incredible transformation into a megastar. And then Ghetto was clever enough to realize, oh, this is all a beautiful sporting framework with clean finishes. What if we get a really Americanized group like the Bullet Club and it'll feel like a transgression all over again? I thought that was incredible. Um, Entertainment value, I think the first six months of the Inner Circle in AEW was just so fantastic, so tremendously entertaining. Le Champion was brilliant, but it wasn't so stupid and excessive and over the top that it didn't really feel like a heartfelt war between them and the elite. So off the top of my head, them. Yeah, it's, uh, it mentions, I was going to obviously bring the Bullet Club up because it was like, even in the midst of when Vince was like, nah, stables aren't the way forward. In New Japan, you had Bullet Club just, just being the perfect example of, I mean, there's dangers with it and we'll come to those with uh, with all stables. You had them, you had like LIJ coming through as well. It, it was baffling that they didn't choose to do that. But what are some of your favourite staples? Well, to that point, um, three of the only genuine bona fide stars that this company made in a dreadful era were all three members of The Shield. And I absolutely love The Shield. Um, we've talked before on podcasts, if anyone's a regular listener, I'm one of these weird guys that never switched WWE off. And there are periods when you reflect back through, why was that? What act was keeping you switched on for those lean periods? And The Shield was absolutely one of them. It was just so cool watching an act that they were clearly committed to. And when you hear later uh, that the three of them had to fight to get their ideas across, and it was so much more helpful that they were in a stable rather than just one versus one in the case of Vince McMahon. It makes you realise the value of them behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera. Um, It might scan as a guilty pleasure now because they're kind of a parody, but I absolutely love and can watch any time the original incarnation of The Generation X. I can. Rick Rude, China, Triple H and Shawn Michaels. It's dangerous. It's like, the word has lost all meaning, but it's edgy. Mm. It feels extremely close to the edge and often feels like it's tiptoeing over it. I love the Heart Foundation. I love Bret the Hitman Heart, but they kind of looked like cartoonish pro wrestlers in the face of people that were genuinely like when they say they were adding realism to the product they were like and by that and it wasn't always for the betterment of the show (laughs) Shawn Michaels was in a dangerous headspace and a difficult place in his life like and there was a reason why Triple H was getting the rub on screen with him it's because he was basically getting him from town to town behind the scenes you know but there was something about that friendship and all those like it was people just think it was all sophomoric humour but it was near the knuckle and Bang, it was every bit as on trend as they say they were. Mm. And that scans as a lie when you're seeing footage of the tanks or glow sticks or kayak jokes from Vince with 2006. That is nonsense. That is completely separated from what the original mm. Generation X were. Stables should feel... I think this is about the inner circle. As much as they were, like, because it's Chris Jericho, they were comedic in places. They were dangerous. Mm. They were a threat to the baby faces. They were a threat to the show. They were a threat to your nice time. And the original DX absolutely did that. And of course, much of that was patterned off the original ideas, at least, of Hall and Nash's vision of the NWO. Mm. 
that had to mesh with Hulk Hogan's. So sometimes the NWO doesn't, I think now, doesn't look as threatening as it might have once first felt. But I know me and Cedric have shared this same feeling before. WCW was harder to access in the UK, so you would catch glimpses. But my first vision of Hulk Hogan as a heel with the black dye beard uh, and the black was on the cover of a magazine, and it stopped me in my track. It stopped my dad in his tracks <laughs> as I was getting the magazine. What's happened to Hogan? And I completely understand why millions flock to the... I do, because Hulk Hogan and a gang of thugs beating down baby faces, like, changed everything. It, it felt like a real transgression. I couldn't from believe you know. what I was seeing when I first switched over to TNT. It was just bizarre. And it sometimes feels a bit repetitive and a bit cartoonish, because Hogan kind of can't help himself, but you, you just cannot understate how powerful those beatdowns were. And it meant so much that it was a group. It really did. Yeah. He needed heavies, and he needed it as if, like... It, well, he's, it was these evildoers that made him what's become of him. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't, right? Hold now. it in, hold on. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Before we go any further, though, this podcast is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you've got no idea where it's going? Well, it's all those subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it is endless. I'm guilty of this, so I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was more shocking than a wrestling betrayal. You see, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. That's rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Now, we've described stables as a, a secret weapon of, of Triple H's, but it is, you know, a dangerous tightrope to walk. You mentioned the NWO there. Other issues, obviously. It's just so confusing sometimes with stables. <laughs> uh, what can, Got to remember what, that. What can they learn? It's like four of them or something. Uh, uh, uh. What can they learn from AEW and how they utilize stables? Um... This year, 2022, in AEW in particular, has been defined by excess with the roster growth, with the redundant storylines and so much else and blood. Um, everything in moderation, in context, works. But the issue in Triple H might find himself in this sort of bother in about a year from now is that as much as a stable is the solution to the problem inherent to professional wrestling, it's 52 weeks uh, a year, it's live, Literally will never, ever, ever, ever stop. Look at Impact. It just doesn't stop. It just doesn't <laughs> stop. And as a result of that, 
Um, it can also be the problem as well as the solution. How many times have we seen? Because what you've done by setting the rule of, remember when WWE babyfaces had no friends? And it's like, why is no one saving them? Why is no one saving them? They look like idiots. This, these heat angles are just sort of interminable for how long they are going all the time. The stable thing corrects that by having babyfaces aligned with other babyfaces. But the amount of times on Dynamite, particularly this year, and sometimes last, let's not have too many rose-tinted um, glass reflections on last year, incredible though it was, how many times have we seen, right, okay, so there's a representative from a face stable and a heel stable having a wrestling match on Dynamite, which is great because it preserves the uh, the head honchos going to battle at the pay-per-view. That's what's good about the stable. Yeah. But how many times have you just seen this blur of aimless, brawling limbs, and it doesn't really feel heated, it just feels like a narrative obligation, the thing that makes sense to do, rather than like a pack of gangs really trying to get each other's throats. Um, so it really can get redundant at times, and I just think that if you have too many stables and the programming, just the storyline gets redundant. Another thing, if you go so long without winning or benefiting from being in a stable, mm. it kind of impacts your opinion on the characters. Like, what are what's Sammy Guevara getting out of being with associated with Chris Jericho at this point? Wouldn't you think more of him if after literally three years and a bit of a botched TNT title reign later, would that character, if this was all real, and I know the Sammy Guevara character is a bit of an idiot, but notwithstanding that, would you not think, well, what am I really getting out of this? And it just sort of ends the pursuit sometimes of individual glory, which is the whole point of being in pro wrestling. Basically, what I'm arriving at, and sorry, my typical long-winded way, is that I can just feel so much more like a device mm. than something that really makes an awful lot of sense. I think the imprint going forward, for the baby faces at least, in AEW is, and I know it wasn't necessarily by design, I think if CM Punk had never got injured, what's happening with the Blackpool Combat Club would look completely different right now. Um, obviously, Mox has had to have that title because he's the goddamn man and the goddamn best. But ultimately, I like the Blackpool Combat Club as a sort of loose collective of like-minded individuals who won't always rush out to one another's aid because they sort of honor themselves and consider themselves like proper men who can honestly sort their own stuff out half the time only when it's a really egregious heel assault or something like really unjust will they come out otherwise you can actually do heat angles because the problem with having too many stables and too many babyface stables is that you get rid of the heat angle because the babyfaces are always going to come out and help ends the big blur of arms schmoz so i love the blackpool combat club as this loose collective of like-minded talent and i think more babyface factions in aew should go that way because you need heat mm. and the problem with too many babyface stables is you don't get enough of it and the difficulty you also have is not every stable hamlet can be the bloodline can be the top of the card mm. but you don't want everyone else to just be the social outcasts or whoever it may be mm. but we've also seen and, and i've lost count of the amount of times the three of us have sat here and just shrugged at the concept of the push and pull and the 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 war that's going on between the Andrade family office and Matt Hardy, for example, for private party. Yeah, it's still, like, we can't lose sight of the fact that it still should be about compelling angles and compelling stories. Stables um, and championship belts, and, like, AEW is probably the best example of that for this year. Stables and championship belts, too many of them, and you care about none of them. Uh, too few of them, and it feels like, what are we really all fighting for? What's everybody doing here? 
it's like everything else, you've got to find a balance. The Bloodline are a great example at the moment because for the longest time, I thought the Bloodline as just the Usos and Roman Reigns was quite an unimaginative idea that they threw belts at to try and make look bigger than they actually were. As soon as you attach a couple of compelling stories to that, the day that Sami Zayn, as a conspiracy theorist, targets the very top of the SmackDown tree in order to try and like confirm all of his suspicions, you take it in a different direction. As soon as they reach out to somebody from another brand in Solo Sokoa, you suddenly like you can have a look at them and think, are they suddenly paranoid of the power that they think they're yielding, like they're wielding over the brand? That's the difference. That's why. That's what to me is what has elevated the bloodline. Is all of a sudden you know them as characters, not just as dominant heels defending their belts every month in fairly predictable matches, or the Usos acting as running buddies. Which again, you've got like the Horsemen. It's it's a tricky one with the Horsemen because they were kind of the perfect template, but a lot of people misunderstood what made them so great. Yes, they were Ric Flair's running buddies, but they were so so much more than that. Mm. And I think sometimes you, Vince McMahon was guilty of this. If he was gonna compromise on a stable it would basically be a bunch of jabronis looking after the top guy. Um, kind of like if you look at the last version of the, the Rock's Nation of Domination versus what it existed to be originally as another example of that. When he sees one star, then that's it. And ultimately, you've got to at least give agency to the other members as well. Um, and again, the bigger they get, the less you're interested in the members. And it's just, any, Anything can fail. The Andrade family office is a perfect example of this. You can love all the wrestlers individually, you can think that they can go and you can want to see them wrestle more, but anything can feel pointless if you've not attached meaningful stakes or you've not asked people to emotionally invest and simply join or leaving stables isn't the, isn't the quick fix that we may be presenting stables as. It's still about good book. Everything's always about good booking and yeah. good storylines. It's just this fills you with so many more numbers and so many more ranks with, as Sidgwick says, to get through the, unfortunately, the 52 rolling weeks a year you need to tell those stories. It's just permutation facilitator. Yeah. facilitator. That's mm. what a stable is, ultimately. And, yeah, it's fantastic when it works, but like anything, just stop doing it in excess, Tony. <laughs> I was about to say that with, with, with Triple H in terms of utilising this and taking what we talked about there with AEW, is it also, like we said with him signing free agents and stuff, him knowing when to say, all right, that's enough, that's, that's the limit, because yes, you, uh, you know, I've sat here and listed these, these teams off and you know I could list five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten more mm. uh, in and around WWE main roster, NXT, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, if everyone's in a stable, it all gets a bit muddy, doesn't it? Yeah, and Triple H, at least for the short term, you would hope would know this, right? So I'm not... I like the Undisputed Era, but I don't love them. But I think where history has been and will remain particularly kind to the Undisputed Era is if you flash back to NXT and all the times they would have the tag belts or Adam Cole would be the world champion or whatever, there wasn't really another stable that compete. And then once a year, four baby faces might come together and try and beat them in war games. And he was quite good at being organic and getting them there. But ultimately, typically... Uh, Fish and O'Reilly would be defending the belts, but they would also have Adam Cole and Roderick Strong behind the scenes if they needed a four-on-two advantage. And I think that was the success of the Undisputed Era in people's rose-tinted memories of that NXT, was that there just really wasn't many people to compete with them. They were able to remain dominant because they were able to play the numbers game to their advantage. If you can apply, and NXT was such a smaller place, so you mm. kind of didn't want to fit too many more stables in there. If he can apply that thought to the bigger and expanded WWE and... I don't know. There's no set rule, but let's just say three stables on Raw and two on SmackDown, for example. If he can remain disciplined in that respect, he too can like have a prosperous couple of years off it. We're not saying that AEW can never rebound and have a nice fertile environment of stables again, because there was a point when very, very bad faith actors were saying, there's just too many, I don't get it. And we were talking about four, like four groups, maybe. If like that. Four major groups, that if that. Yeah. 
like Triple H can absolutely maintain and balance that over what five hours of main roster television a week, easy. Yeah, it's very exciting because as a blueprint blueprint for him, I know he took over and it was already rolling, but the bloodline has been such such, such fertile ground, as he said, for as an example for what they should do with stable. Yeah, and it's such a great, unique twist on the format as well. Like I wasn't a big fan of the original incarnation of the bloodline, nor the very exposition, <laughs> yeah. heavy melodrama that kind of formed them before they actually were a stable and a unit. But there's Sami Zayn wrinkle. And even before then, I thought they looked legitimate. I thought it was really, really like cool visually. Um, but I did get a little bit tired of the constant run-ins and the fact that there was no... Um, behind-the-scenes authority figure saying, no, that should be put in a cage match six months before I finally said it. Um, but the wrinkle of Sami Zayn is so fantastic because it frames the bloodline. His wanting to be in them in itself frames the bloodline as this incredibly dominant, cool group. The contrast of Sami Zayn, who's such a genius and willingly makes himself look like a dork, if I'm being perfectly honest. I should know, look at me. But... Um, <laughs> His use and his position in this group, albeit loosely, uh, makes them seem cool, visually makes them feel powerful because he aspires to be them. And because they are heel stable, they are going to seem like the cruelest gang of bastards when they finally turn on him. It's been an absolute masterstroke putting Sami Zayn in this bloodline faction. And honestly, as much as I prefer, just for my personal sensibilities, there's nothing wrong with it, AEW's approach to wrestling mm -hmm. over WWE's, the Bloodline's the best stable in wrestling right now. I like the JAS, I really do, um, but I feel like it's an offshoot of something that was more iconic. In the Bloodline, with the addition of Sami Zayn, is something I really haven't seen. I know there's a wolf pack and someone <laughs> I'm not going to talk about on the podcast. Uh, comparison to be drawn, but this is infinitely better. Yeah, great stuff and very exciting to see where Triple H goes from here with stables in WWE. Let us know your thoughts in the comments section below uh, or on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Watch so you can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflet at Michael Hamflet. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at M. Sidgwick. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWWE. Uh, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. WhatCulture Wrestling, wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, this has been Get the Table. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon.